This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And I am sitting on pins and needles today because Taylor (laughs) told me she has a story for chit-chat, but she's not going to tell me what it is ahead of time, so that means we all get to listen together, and it generally means it's going to be really good. Don't have your hopes up. So I've just set the bar really high. So I know. Get get yourself well, off to a good running start. This is this is I told him that it was well, it's kind of a funny story, depending on your point of view. So what happened was several months ago, maybe even six months, I don't know, a while ago, we had a big windstorm come through and it ripped over this metal shed that I had down by the chicken yard where I would keep like supplies and things. And the shed, I don't even know where it came from originally. And somebody had the, in the, whoever built the thing originally, they uh, secured it to, I guess they'd use pallets and then laid down press board and then secured the shed to that press board base. So the shed is about, well, I can tell you exactly how big it is now. It's 10 feet by five and a half feet. So it's it's pretty, pretty decent. It's metal. um, And the storm came along and just ripped it off and dumped it upside down. And the reason for that is, I guess, however much time it was that this thing had been screwed into this press board, the press board had gotten wet and rotted. And eventually it just wasn't strong enough to hold it anymore. And so the screws that had screwed it into the press board, they still had press board attached to them. <laughs> they were still screwed in. It's just the press board was in the air instead of on the ground. <laughs> so it was this big debate, like, what do I do with this thing? And finally, um, there had been this other thing that had been built years ago and just abandoned. And it, I guess it was meant to be like an arbor or they were going to, whoever had it was going to deck it and turn it into like a sitting area. I don't know. But it's basically was just this big eyesore of big two by sixes and two by fours, whatever, all bolted together into this sort of rectangular frame And it had been sitting there for so long that there were like trees growing in the middle of it and whatnot. So I've hated this thing from the moment I first saw it. So I finally was like, screw it. I'm taking this thing apart. And so I did. And I had all this this pile of wood. Uh, Most of it was still really good wood. And I wasn't really sure what to do with it. It It's just sitting there now in this big pile. And I look over there at the upside down metal thing, metal shed that I'm not sure what to do with. And I went, huh, I know what to do with this wood. This is, this is solid. This is not press board. This is solid. And there's these other, uh, pallets just sitting over there making a, making this place look like a dump. I'm going to use those pallets. I'm going to deck them 
and then I'll turn this shed up and screw it onto that deck and it will be good for another 10 or 15 years. Genius plan. <laughs> so I set about doing this and it, I'm, you know, I sit there, I measure everything and I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And I'm so excited. It took me like a day and a half to build this deck. And when I say a day and a half, I don't mean a day and a half. I mean, like after my work is over, I go outside for maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And I just do stuff, try and, you know, keep ahead of the place that just wants to fall down around me. So I build this deck and I'm so proud of myself and I measure, you know, cut it like, cause not all the boards are the same length. So I, you know, I'm out there with circular saw and cut them clean lines, just beautiful. And then I start getting the metal shed ready to put into positions so that with help, I'm going to have, it's too heavy for me to lift by myself, even like using leverage and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to have to get somebody to help me, but I need to at least line it up. And as I'm lining it up, I look at it and I go, huh, this isn't right. And I go back and get the tape measure and I measure again. And I was off by a foot and a half (laughs) in width. I just, I I couldn't believe it. Like I had been so careful because in my head at that time, this, the, the, the saying measure twice, cut once was in my head. So I was trying to be so careful about making sure that I got this right. I, I don't even know how. How did I get off? I, I just, I couldn't. And I was so angry that the only thing I could do was laugh. Like, not only did I waste this wood, I wasted my time. And I'm just, wah, so mad. And so I'm like, okay. Think, 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 think. And it took me a day and a half of thinking to figure out how to solve it without taking it apart, without losing any of the wood. And it was that I had left extra, a lip, on both sides of this thing over the pallet. And I had done that, like, well, I'll have some wiggle room if I, you know, so that it doesn't have to sit exactly square. I want want some extra space to work with. And so using the, that lip, I was able to build a platform under, like I was having to use like eight inch bolts <laughs> to just make sure everything was attached. I didn't want the wind to come along and pick it up off the ends and flip it off again. Like I wanted this whole thing secure attached. So I was able to extend the length off both sides by building platforms with using four by fours and anyway, so now it was solid and I finally got the whole thing put back up and, and it's flipped back up right and screwed in. And I had to repair all the damaged places and places where rivets had popped out and whatnot. But I got it and it's solid and it's good. And I'm so proud of myself. But for a while there, I was just like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't even know what to say to this. Like, I just speechless, speechless that I could have messed it up so bad. So that's my story. And I expect that we've all had moments like that where you, you just put all this planning and thought into something and you're just getting ready to whatever it is, release it into the world or bolt it on to, to this thing. And you go, yeah, this doesn't work at all. How did I do this? And, and I have to say, and the thing that I'm still patting myself on the back for is that aside from the extra bolts that I had to go and buy to, cause I had enough to get me through of repurposed bolts to get me through the first layer did not have, I had to go buy more. Um, 
aside from those bolts, every single piece of that thing was repurposed. So it got rid of stuff that was laying around without having to spend any money. And I was just like, yeah. (laughs) So anyway. (laughs) Well, that leads us beautifully into our topic for today. Not at all. Not in any way, shape, or form does it lead us into our topic today. But we do have another question from Tanya. Yes. So I'm very excited to continue on with Tanya's questions. And this one that I wanted to focus on has to do with culture and the context of specific words. And so the way Tanya asked this is she's asking about culture and context-specific words, basically any words and concepts that you can't expect everyone to know, such as a specific flower or the smell of a dish, clothing article, religious artifact, cultural tradition, tool of a profession, etc. She says, I don't want to get wordy and spoon-feed an explanation to the reader who might understand immediately but I also don't want readers to stumble over words and be pulled out of the story. If it's something that the character interacts with, I can imagine working in some hints. But how would you go about creating the image in the reader's mind if it's something that some have never seen before or some may know, but just not by name? Do you have any tips for that kind of a problem? And part of me says, oh, boy, do I ever. And the other part of me says, wait, (laughs) do you have any specific examples? No, you don't. So um, I'll just do what I do and talk about personal experience here. A lot of, all of my books take place in foreign locations. So all of them require describing things that may or may not be familiar to the vast majority of readers. So The way that I look at it is I am an English speaker writing for a predominantly English speaking audience, and most of that English speaking audience are American readers. So that's my baseline, right? So wherever you are as an author, you've got to know your baseline. If you're in Europe and you know that you're writing for a European audience, but you hope to be able to break into like international readers like the American audience, that's your baseline right there. Uh, When someone outside your baseline is reading your work, they're probably going to have a sense that of of what your baseline is. So let's say American readers, right? If they're reading a book by a Scandinavian author, they know they're reading a Scandinavian author, even if the book is in English. We had that big discussion about translations, and we know we're not going to put the translators on the page. So they might assume that it was written in English originally, but they're going to know the baseline. They're going to know it by the settings and all of that. So if you know that you're writing for an audience outside your your particular knowledge zone, then you do get a little bit of leeway in that sense that let's say an American set of readers reading a book that is set in Scandinavia, they are automatically going to expect there to be, and I use this term very (laughs) heavily with finger quotes, that there are going to be exotic things in the book that they may not already be familiar with in their everyday life. And that is part of the appeal of reading that type 
of book. So you have some leeway there. Where you might run into trouble, a little more trouble with the baseline, is if, like me, you're an American author writing for an American audience about things outside the cultural expectations. So if you're writing a book that takes place in Equatorial Guinea, for example, but you're an American author writing for an American audience, you don't automatically get that expectation that there are going to be things in there that they don't understand. So you have to accommodate accordingly. And all of that ties into this question of how do you deal with, you know, context or cultural specific words. And that's why I say you've got to know your baseline because you don't want to be insulting readers that would already understand immediately. So if you are a Scandinavian writer and you're writing for um, a Scandinavian audience with a hope of writing for an American audience, you have that leeway of using cultural specific stuff and maybe not having to over explain it. But if you, but you don't have to, to worry about offending like the American readers not getting it. And you don't have to worry about over explaining it to your Scandinavian readers because you're not going to You'll be have just enough in there. Right. So in the case of, let's say you're writing outside for you're talking about things that exist outside those baseline expectations. How do you go about that? And as with so many things, it depends. Um, you want to avoid as much as possible using jargon. So I can use The Catch as a good example of this because The Catch was a book that took place in a story that took place inside the maritime industry. And there's a lot like the maritime industry, they, they have their own words for that world. They don't call stairs stairs. They call them ladders. They don't call hallways hallways. They call them passageways. They Everything has its own language. It's not up. It's aloft. And so, but in, you don't have to over explain some of that stuff because it's, it's implied. Like you can sort of get it anyway, without having to, and that meant whatever. So in that sense, you, there's some jargon that's okay to use if it's easily understood in context, then fine. But you don't want to get into jargony technical stuff unless and only if it is critical to the plot. Because if something is critical to the plot, then you now have an opportunity to explain it. And you explain it from a plot perspective. People need to understand what this means because it's going to matter because of these other reasons. But for the most part, barring plot centric concepts, you want to avoid the jargon. You want to avoid the specialty language. So that's just check, avoid, right? What about things like flowers or the smell of dishes, of, of a food dish or a clothing article, religious artifact? How do you treat those? My first question is, do they pertain to the plot? Do they matter to the plot? Because like I just said, something that is plot-centric is different than something that is detail or scene setting, right? So we already know that if it pertains to the plot, then you have a lot more leeway and wiggle room for explaining something because it 
and then I put in like capital, it matters, right? Like this is a thing. So really what we're getting at is the texture, the senses of smell and place and the the atmosphere and the scene setting that the character is walking through. How do you deal with those types of things? And here I would say there's there's two ways to go about this. The first is how much of a role does the setting play in the story? If your entire story is set in this one world and you're trying to build the texture of that world, it's a completely different thing than if your character is just passing through. So let's start, talk about the character passing through part first, because that's easy. If your character is just passing through and this world that you're they're involved in is not critical to who they are as a person. It's not, it's not like the place is a character in the story or anything like that. Then you sort of try and avoid overuse of any types of description that would require explanation. So let's say, let's use the smell of a dish, for example. Why that dish? What is the purpose of using that specific dish to trigger that smell in that particular scenario. If you're only doing it to make the, the, the location seem real, like you're just throwing out words and things that you would, nouns of, of stuff that would exist in that thing to try and make the place seem real, you're probably off base because that's not going to do it. You can't just say, oh, it was the smell of this particular dish reminded her of home or whatever. In in a particular dish, smells are, there are a lot of, of fragrances that are universal. For example, if it's a very cinnamon-heavy dish, then you can just use cinnamon as a, a universal connector, right? the dish and and take it from there if it's clothing that's specific to that culture then you could use it once with a very small description for what it is and keep on going and then never have to use that description again but you just use it in context to bring things up these are all if your character is just passing through because if your character is passing through you're working in broad brush strokes to create the setting, the world that they're in before they move on to something else. You don't have the time to devote to a lot of this stuff, so you avoid it. And you stick as close as possible to things that have easy comparisons elsewhere in the world. Now, if this culture or context or industry or whatever it is is specific to the book, this is the world that your book is is written in, then that's different. And this is where we really focus in on the issue of how do you deal with these things. And, you know, as with so much else, there's no one right way to do it. But if you're going to have a rule of thumb for a right way to do it, it is you try and keep it as connected to the character and connected to the plot and connected to the conflict 
as is possible. You don't just throw out descriptions of things for the sake of description. They have to have a reason for being there. And the easiest way to create that reason is to have them as part of the world that the character is moving through, character in motion. So the character basically engages with these things, and you can describe a flower by having the character pick it up and sniff it. And and through the description of how the where the character reaches, how the character what the character sees, you can describe something somebody has never seen before in a way that they can relate to it. Same with smells, same with clothing. Religious artifacts and cultural traditions require a little bit more handling and care because they can't just be immediately compared one thing to another. They can't they can't just be something that your character notices and moves on So from. So they have to be part of the story for them to belong. And I did this um, when with the informationist. It was like I was just learning how to write. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But the biggest challenge for me in that story for quite some time was figuring out how to incorporate all this detail about the country without turning it into a travelogue. How do you keep this as part of the story. So even back then, all the way when I didn't know what I was doing, there was this conscious effort on my part to integrate the detail with what was happening in that moment. And when you're able to do that, when you're able to take the detail that the character is experiencing and integrate it with the character in motion, and character motion is integrated with the plot, then you have that leeway to describe things without it being boring and without going into a lot of detail and without taking the reader out of the story because it's part of what is happening. It's part of the character in motion. It's part of the plot. That is really how you integrate detail regardless. Scene setting detail, you do it through character in motion. When you have a, let's say, religious artifact, if it is part of the plot or central to this world that the character, this story is wrapped within, you have the space to describe its importance to the story. You have the space to describe its importance to the character. You do not have the space to describe it just for the sake of describing it. It shouldn't be there if it doesn't matter. Cultural traditions are the same. Um, when I wrote The Mask, which takes place in Japan, it's heavy on cultural tradition because it's, I mean, Japanese society is just so traditional in the way the culture is, is a single culture. Like it's not a melting pot like the United States. Foreigners are few and far between. The whole country is basically in lockstep and the, the traditions go back for centuries, millennia. I don't even know how far back. And so that is a story that I couldn't write without integrating the cultural traditions. But the cultural traditions then became part of the plot. And in some cases, I wanted to highlight certain aspects of cultural tradition because I wanted to show what it was like in, you know, the salaryman world or the, you know, what it was like for housewives. And the way of doing that is very, it's, it's light-handed. It's just things that your character sees and her thoughts and her feelings on them as compared to her own experiences. It doesn't matter if your reader has the same experiences as the character. They've seen the character's experiences so they can connect to those and understand how those experiences compared to what the 
the character is witnessing, experiencing, and her thoughts and feelings on those, or his, as the case may be. So you can integrate those types of things into the plot in depth with detail. And it's not going to feel like over-explaining or spoon-feeding as long as it is part of the plot, part of character motion, pertains to what the character is thinking or feeling, and it's not just there sitting on a table and saying, oh, look, here's this cultural artifact, and it has no purpose in this book. But I want to tell you about it because this is part of the culture, and I want you to make this think this culture is real. So let's say you are a Scandinavian writer, and you're writing for your Scandinavian audience, and you're hoping to write for an American audience, and you're talking about specific types of food that exist and that the characters are sitting down and having a meal. Do you need to explain them? No, you don't. You can have your characters enjoy the taste, the savory taste of whatever, or wishing that there was more of this or reminding them of some other place, but you really don't need to get into a lot of detail about it because it doesn't matter to the story and it doesn't matter to the character. You can use those words. Um, You can even use a foreign word, whatever it would be used in the local culture, but then you just have to follow it up with a small two, three, four words of, you know, a fish, you know, or a rice and chicken or whatever it is, just so that if you're using that foreign terminology, your readers aren't completely lost in their own language. But you just really don't have to spend a lot of time explaining small stuff if it doesn't matter to the story. Having it matter to the story is the best way to be able to go into detail about stuff that you want to include to make that culture come alive or to make the situation come alive. I've, that I did, does that does that make sense? Is it clear? Yes, and I'm really glad you you brought up the mask because that was the first thing I I thought of when you started down this path. There were so many cultural. I mean, all be, as you mentioned, all of your books take place around the world, but the most exotic for me as a reader was the the one that that set that was set in Japan. And I was thinking specifically of the hostess clubs. When I came across that, I'd never heard that term before. I had kind of a vague idea what it might be, but I'd never heard that term before. And it was it became an integral part of the story. Um, and and the whole salary man thing. We've heard we've heard the term salary man before, but to be taken inside the culture of that um, and and to do it in a way that's delicate. It's not like, here's the definition of a salary man. It's just, you, you see it, you, you see them in the story. Okay. So thank you so much for that. Cause I totally forgot about the hostess club thing. And it's such a perfect example. So, um, from my time living in Japan and then coming, going back again to, to make sure I had details, right. To write the mask. I really wanted to talk about hostess clubs because it's it's just so much just a part of life in Japan. And it's very, I don't know if it's unique to Japan, but it's very not American, let's just say. And I'm writing, that's my baseline, right? I'm writing for an American audience. So in order to accurately convey that aspect of the culture, I couldn't just Oh, and hey, she goes, you know, sees a, uh, here's, let me tell you about hostess clubs. You know, you can't, it had to matter to the story. And so I actually crafted part of the story around these 
key cultural aspects that I wanted to be able to discuss. As and it wasn't so much a sense of I need these things in the story in order to make this culture seem real, because you can not talk about hostess clubs and Japanese culture was just so rich and and lengthy, could have gone in any direction. It was just this one aspect that I thought was interesting. And I didn't think it really showed up a lot in novels. And that's my goal when I'm writing is like, let's let's go off the beaten path a little bit and talk about stuff that maybe people don't know about. So I knew that I wanted to talk about that. I knew that there were a few other places that I wanted to highlight and have show up in the story. And the story is built around those so that they are integrated in and they don't feel out of place or like, oh, we just took a trip here for no reason that does, that matters nothing to the story just so we could see what a hostess club looked like. It, it was, that was how those details that have no exact equivalent in most countries were conveyed so that readers could understand them. But that is like a large, large cultural thing, not like just a small piece of clothing or what have you. So, but it's, but I still think it's a, a good example of how the, the point being it mattered to the story. And so I think after all that rambling of trying to explain it to myself, even it all boils down to how do you do it? Make it matter to the story, make it matter to the character, make it matter to the conflict. And at that point you're forgiven for explanations because the explanations aren't just about the thing, which somebody who familiar with the thing might be bored if the explanation was just about the thing. What you're explaining is how the thing matters to the story, how the thing matters to the character. And somebody who is even familiar with that thing is not going to be bored because you're not telling them about the thing. You're telling them about the character, telling them about the story. And that's how you integrate. That is the, the most concise way I can explain Forget everything else I just said if you have to. Make it matter to the story, make it matter to the character, make it matter to the conflict, and you will be forgiven for just about any explanation you have to offer. Well, and Taylor, thank you for giving the more verbose answer first, because otherwise we would have had a nine-minute podcast with eight minutes talking about chit-chat things. Well, if I hadn't given the verbose answer first, we would not have had the concise answer because I wouldn't have even known what it was. I love I, You know, I don't know if people realize this, that you are you're summarizing all this stuff at the end just just from the top of your from the top of your head. And then you get this very concise answer at the end, which you do so often. And it's like, yeah, this is it. This, these are the two sentences. Yeah, <laughs> I get such a I, kick out I, of it. I, w- I had to go through all that to get the two sentences, which unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, but that's pretty much how I write, too. I have to write 10,000 words to get, you know, 500 good ones because it takes all of that time for me to figure out what it is I actually understand. Trying to say. All right. So that is anyway. it for this week's show. Again, thank you, Tanya, for that great question. And, uh, you know, what a great question specifically for Taylor. So that was fabulous. Uh, we will be back with you again soon. So thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you guys for being here. More questions, please, because by the time I run out of answering Tanya's questions, we're going to be back to, hey, more content or, or we're going on hiatus. So please write me, send me, send me more, feed me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>